Well, good morning, everyone. Today we're starting a brand new series called The B-Sides, really looking at some unfamiliar stories in the Bible and asking ourselves really one main question. Why are they here and what are they to teach us? Because here's what I believe. I believe that every single piece and portion of scripture is actually there and is inspired and authoritative and is meant to actually to form us. Paul actually says this, that all scripture is God-breathed and is supposed to be used for our training and our development and our growth. So for this series, we're going to be seeing some really unfamiliar stories, maybe not the kind of familiar ones for many people both in church and in culture of like David and Goliath or Noah or whatever else. And so we're going to look at some stories that are a little bit more obscure, asking that question, why is it here and what does God have to teach us? What does God want to form within us. And the real lens we'll be taking really is that we believe that God wants to form us in three ways here at Bethany. This is how we talk about following Jesus. That God wants to form us with up, with, and out. That we are all called actually to daily connect up with Jesus. We're also called to journey deeply with others. And then we're also lastly called to serve and sacrifice out in the community. We're called to do all of those three things, up, with, and out. And actually, if we miss any one of those three things, our discipleship and our formation will be lopsided. So, for example, if we are connecting really daily up with Jesus and journeying really deeply with others, but we aren't serving and sacrificing out in the community, what will end up happening, actually, is our discipleship will actually just become a club. It'll become inward. It won't have any momentum or energy or impact. We're called to do all three. Or, for example, if, if in our discipleship and our following of Jesus, we are connecting up with Jesus and we're serving and sacrificing out in the community, but we're not doing it deeply with others... What will end up happening is we will burn out, actually, and we'll have blind spots. Or if we're just actually serving and sacrificing out in the community, and we're doing it with others, but not with the connection with Jesus, that's activism, not Christianity. So what we really believe is that every single Christian is called to grow in those three areas of up, with, and out. And so over this series, we're going to be actually exploring those different various areas. Today I'm going to be sharing a sermon, obviously, I'm going to be sharing a sermon, and it's going to really be focusing in um, on out, on how do we serve and sacrifice out in the community. Some of the other services that I'll be sharing in, we'll see some things about our up, our relationship with Jesus, and also journeying with others. We're going to see all of that here together. And so today, as I said, I do want to talk a little bit about out and serving and sacrificing out in the community. But I want to do that actually through what is quite possibly one of the most obscure, strange, bizarre, and even startling stories in the Old Testament. As soon as I read it, you're probably going to be like, what does this have to do with serving and sacrificing out in the community? And I'll just invite you just to hang on. I hope that we will get there uh, here together. But I want to read to you this story, and then we're going to try to work it through here today. Okay? And it's uh, found in 2 Kings. So if you have Bibles, you can open them up there to 2 Kings for the story that we'll be taking a look at today. 2 Kings uh, 2, 23 to 25. And as I said, you might not have ever known this was in your Bible. And quite likely, quite likely, this is going to be the single best sermon that you've ever heard on this passage because generally nobody preaches or teaches from it. And you get an idea why as soon as I read it. Okay, this is a story about Elisha. Read this. Um, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys, um, some kids came out of the town and they jeered at him. They said, get out of here, baldy. They said, get out of here, baldy, which I guess is an Old Testament kind of way of mocking people. Uh, he turned around them and he looked at them and he called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Did you know that was in your Bibles? Is that not like one of the most strange stories ever. And the narrator just like kind of just shares it, right? As if it's like a normal and straight thing. And then Elijah just says, or Elisha says this, and he went on to Mount Carmel and returned to Samaria as if like nothing kind of happened. 
It is a really strange and bizarre story. But like I said at the very beginning, I believe that every single piece and portion of scripture is actually meant and is actually there for us to learn from, that we can learn from all of it. It's all authoritative and inspired. So I want to actually pay attention even to this very strange story of what might we be able to learn from this. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to get a little bit nerdy here today. Okay? Now, I know it's a long weekend, but I can think of no better way to spend a long weekend than by getting nerdy with the Bible and really trying to understand things. So today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you two interpretations of this passage, one that's a more common interpretation and a second one that's more of a Jesus-centered kind of in-depth interpretation. So you're really going to get like, uh, it's kind of like a two-for-one Sunday. You're going to get two interpretations. One of them I'm persuaded by. The other one I'm not persuaded by. But I'm really going to invite you to think this stuff through too, to think through what is this story here to teach us? What can we learn from it? So let's begin with a common interpretation. Now, the common interpretation just seeks to take everything kind of at face value, just kind of straight as things would seem. And this is an okay way to interpret the Bible sometimes, but sometimes when you do this, actually, it can lead you astray because not everything is simple in the Bible. Some things are a little bit more complex, actually. So for uh, the common interpretation of this passage, the main idea is just this, that Elisha, in calling out she bears to attack children, to attack boys, right, in this passage, that this was good, necessary, and even holy that this was good, necessary, and even holy, that the common interpretation of this passage is this, is that when the children are mocking Elisha, when they're saying, get out of your baldy, get out of your baldy, when they're mocking him, what they're really doing is mocking God's representative, and that you aren't able to mock God's representative, and that if you mock a representative of God, you're actually, in essence, mocking God. This is how many people see this passage. So, for example, one commentator puts it this way. He says, though it is a difficult story in moral terms, because it is, right? Though it is a difficult story in moral terms, it serves to illustrate the scope of divine authority of which the prophet is an instrument. So the common interpretation really seeks to see that this uh, prophet Elisha was right and justified in calling out she-bears. Now, obviously, there's some moral problems with this story, right? Um, and I think you probably sense them as well. So some commentators, to try to kind of distance themselves from some of the moral difficulties of the story, they'll name a few things. They'll name one, one, that the word that's translated there as boys or as children, it could be translated as older youth as well. So perhaps um, Elisha isn't dealing with children, but some maybe young adults, something like that, or adolescents. A uh, second thing that uh, some commentators point out is that when the she-bears come, it doesn't say that anybody was killed. It just says that the kids were mauled, which seems to me to be a very small distinction um, in reality. Or thirdly, sometimes what people say is that Elisha actually has his life threatened because there are so many kids who are jeering at him and he was scared for his life or whatever. Um, but essentially what ends up happening in the common interpretation is at some point, someone will simply say, this story is really difficult, but we just have to trust God. Okay, they'll essentially just say, this story is really difficult, but we have to trust God. They'll use like scholarly language. I'll give you an example of this, but that's essentially where they come down to. So one scholar, he says this. So for example, he writes this. Accounts such as this, while difficult to understand from the purely human ethical standpoint, which is very true, he says this, must be left ultimately with the divine sovereignty and to the justice of an all-righteous God who doesn't act capriciously. Now, I agree that God is absolutely all-righteous and everything that he does is holy and right and that he doesn't act in random or capricious ways. The problem is in this text, it does seem very random and capricious. So as many of you might guess, I'm not persuaded by this kind of common interpretation that Elisha was right and good and holy in what he did. I'm not persuaded by this mainly because the actions of Elisha, follow with me, don't look anything like Jesus Christ, right? And if we want to know, if we want to know what holiness looks like, who do we look to? 
we look to Jesus. He is the full revelation of God. He defines what holiness and godliness looks like. And I just can't imagine Jesus in the Gospels ever acting like Elisha, right? So for me, there's some kind of moral problems, or as that one commentator puts it, this account, difficult to understand from a purely human ethical standpoint. So I want to share with you then a different way to interpret this passage, a way that can actually still remain really authoritative in the sense that we believe all the Bible is authoritative and inspired for us. But to help us understand a second way to interpret this passage, I want to do something a bit different. We're going to shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk a little bit about tithes. Now, I know none of you are expecting me to talk about tithes today. You also weren't expecting me to talk about probably this passage either. So I want to share with you a little bit about tithes and how this can help us actually in some ways to understand this passage. Now, what are tithes? Well, according to Wikipedia, which obviously can never be wrong, uh, tides are the rise and fall of sea levels caused by the combined effects of the gravitational forces exerted by the moon and the sun and the rotation of the earth. I think this is how we often think about them, right? We think about tides like going in and coming out, the tides rising and falling. But what I want to suggest to you is that this way of talking about tides rising and falling, that they never actually do this. Tides do not rise and fall. Tides do not kind of come in and come out. And if we're in Nova Scotia, Standing next to the Bay of Fundy, you might be like, well, Andrew, that's really what it seems like. Tides come in and out. Tides rise. You know, I think it's there. It's like over 40 feet, right? Tides rise and the tides fall. But actually, technically, that is not what happens. This is just our way of speaking. This is our common understanding of things. This is true from our perspective, but it's actually not technically accurate. A better way to put it is be this. Then instead of tides rising and falling, we actually rotate through bulges of water at the ends that produce the tides. But rather than me trying to explain this to you, I'm going to let a real scientist explain science, and I'm going to stick to the Bible. So I want to hear from uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's going to explain a little bit about tides and how I think this can help us here today. Tides are widely misunderstood. Okay. All right. I will, I will say the next thing I say may be mind-blowing to you. Okay. Okay. The tide doesn't actually come in and out. What? <laughs> What happens is there is a bulge of water, two of them on opposite sides of the earth, caused by the sun and the moon, and earth turns inside that bulge. Mm-hmm. So when, this, when we say the water rises and falls tidally, what's happening is we are rotating into the bulge and then out of the bulge. So the bulge is already there. It's already there. And all we kind of do is pass through the pass bulge. Pass through, and the water gets high, mm-hmm. and it gets low. So we're stuck with language from our own perspective rather than language of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. It's simpler that way to say the water goes in and yeah. out. It's simpler to say the sun set rather than Earth rotated such that our angle of view on the stationary sun fell below our local horizon. Right. Yeah, sunset is far more poetic. Yeah, yeah, you you go to the sunset tables, you know, to look this up. Obviously, if you wonder where I saw that, I saw that on TikTok, the only place to see anything. But what I really like about this is it does teach us really how sometimes things that seem true from our perspective aren't actually what's going on. That sometimes things that we all just commonly assume aren't actually accurate. That what Neil deGrasse Tyson points out with the tides, he reveals how often our perspective and our assumptions shapes things without us realizing it. And how common assumptions, follow with me, common assumptions can actually lead to misguided applications. That common assumptions can lead to misguided applications. That it just simply isn't true that the tides rise and fall. In the same way that it isn't true or accurate to say that the sun sets, right? But this is kind of our way of speaking. That this is an agreed upon kind of common way of approaching things from our perspective. 
What I want to share with you when it comes to our biblical text, actually, is that I think we do something similar. I think we have common assumptions. We have common ways of looking at things from our perspective that actually aren't accurate and actually aren't in the text. So I want to share with you three common assumptions that I want to invite you really to reconsider in the same way that we're reconsidering how to speak about tides, that they don't rise and fall, but we actually rotate through them. I want to invite you to really reconsider some ways of seeing this text. And so I want to invite you to reconsider about three specific assumptions that I think we bring into this text um, with Elijah that I think are not helpful for us. Okay? And the three assumptions are this. First, that Elisha is a good guy. That second, that God is involved in the harming of children. And thirdly, that you can only use power for good. These are the three assumptions I think we bring into the text that I want to invite you really to reconsider. So first, the first assumption I really want to look at is this. I think we assume when it comes to this text with Elisha, I think we assume that Elisha is the good guy in this text, right? I think that's kind of our perspective, that since he's a prophet, right, he must be good. He must be acting rightly. But what I want to invite you to reconsider is really that the Bible, if it is anything, the Bible is brutally honest. And especially when it comes to the heroes of the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New, Really, what the Bible does is it records both the failures and the successes of every single person. The Bible doesn't flinch from saying, you know, somebody did something wrong. There really is no perfect person in the Bible other than Jesus Christ. Every other person, every other character, every other, you know, historical figure, they are all a mixture of both good and bad. We see this with Moses, with Abraham, with David, with Elijah. I would also say here with Elisha that actually we shouldn't assume that Elisha is the good guy in this text. Because if we were to ask in any other situation, is calling out bears on kids a good idea? We would all say no, right? No, and we would all know that that person isn't a good person. So what I want to invite you to consider, first of all, is perhaps that Elisha may not be the hero in this story. I think you need to prove that from the text. We can't just assume that. Just because he's a prophet doesn't mean every single thing he does is holy, righteous, and good. You need to show that from the text, okay? So the first assumption is this assumption that Elisha is a good guy. Second assumption I want us to invite us into. We have this assumption, I think, with the text that God is active and actually moving in this text, that God is somehow doing something or authorizing the activity of Elisha. That's another assumption I want us to think through. I think what we would rightly assume is that if God is acting, God only acts in ways that are righteous, good, and holy, right? But I want to actually ask you a question about this text. Does this text, does this text ever mention God at all? Does this text ever mention God's moving? Does this text ever mention God's perspective? Does the narrator ever speak of God doing anything? I want to read to you the text again and just notice if God is ever mentioned actually in the text. We read this. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he was walking along the road, some boys came out from the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. What we read, if we pay attention, is Elisha curses them in the name of the Lord, but we don't actually hear God doing anything, right? God is surprisingly absent from this text. Never once does it say that God sent the bears. Never once does it say that God told Elisha to do this. Never once does the text actually mention God at all. And when it comes to the Bible, as I often say, we should pay really good attention. How many of you, when I first read this text, maybe were almost initially thinking that God was somehow active in it? I know I was until I started to study it and I realized that God is never mentioned. And you'd think if God did actually send those bears or whatever, you'd think the text would mention that, right? You'd think the text would mention the activity of God, but it doesn't. It just mentions the activity of Elisha. 
So the first assumption I want to challenge is really, or invite us to reconsider, is that Elisha is the good person. The second one is that God is active in the story, when the text doesn't say anything about God's activity. The third one I want us to invite us to really consider, and this one will be probably new for many of us, but I think it's a good thing for us to actually learn new things. The third one is just this, that God will only allow us to use his God-given gifts in righteous and holy ways. This is the third assumption I think we bring into the text, that God will only allow us to use his gifts in righteous and holy ways. And I want us to consider this for a moment, because I think this is an assumption that we bring into the text. So I want to ask you a really simple question. If God gives you a gift, a skill, or ability, right, a talent of some sort, let me just ask you this question. Can you use that gift, skill, talent, ability, can you use it in the way you see fit? Can you use it both rightly, but also wrongly? Can you use it, perhaps both in holy ways, but also perhaps in destructive or selfish ways? Think about all the gifts that God can give. Can you actually use them in healthy and in unhealthy ways? I think what we would know if we pay attention to our own lives is that, yes, God actually gives us free will with how we utilize the gifts that he gives us. So the assumption I think that we bring into this text is that because Elisha right, called the curse down and bears came out, that somehow God was authorizing the activity of Elisha. That God would never allow Elisha to use his gifts in unholy or unhealthy ways. But this is an assumption we bring into the text. There's actually a theological principle called the principle of semi-autonomous power, which means when God gives us a gift or ability or a talent, he actually also gives with us the accountability and the responsibility to use it correctly and to use it wisely and to use it rightly. That he doesn't just stop us from using gifts wrongly, he actually holds us accountable for how we use gifts. Okay? That God does not stop us from using gifts wrongly, he holds us accountable for how we use gifts. And this is actually a scriptural teaching that we see actually throughout scripture, that there are actually a number of different instances where we see people using God-given gifts in unhealthy and destructive ways. God doesn't say, hey, you can't use the gift that way. He doesn't take away the gift. He actually just holds them accountable. So a few examples of this would be, for example, in Samson. Samson uses actually his gifts in really unholy and destructive ways, as we saw a few weeks ago. We also see this with David. David is anointed and given this amazing gift of leadership and all of that, but then sometimes he uses these gifts in incredibly awful ways. Think of like with Bathsheba and Uriah. Or if you want to go to the New Testament, think about Paul. Paul has this amazing ability to actually free people and to heal people. But there's a strange story in Acts actually where Paul turns around and he casts out a demon, not because God told him to, not because God directed him to, simply because he was annoyed and exasperated. The text literally says that Paul was so annoyed, he's just like, get out of here. He uses his gift without any actual thought, actually. And God does not stop the use of his gift. Or the biggest example of this and how God gives us actual gifts and then we're just accountable for how we use them. He doesn't stop us from using them in unholy ways is with Moses, actually. And Moses, there's this story, actually, where God tells Moses, the Israelites need water. God tells Moses to speak to a rock and water will flow out. But Moses is angry. Moses is really furious. So he strikes the rock instead. And what ends up happening is the miracle still happens. Water comes out. But God holds Moses accountable, actually. Moses, he says to him that because he used his gifts wrongly, he was not able to enter into the promised land. But God did not stop him from using his gifts in unholy or wrong ways. What I want to suggest to you, what I want to suggest to you that is very scriptural and that we need to wrap our heads around, is that when God gives us a gift, we are responsible for how we use that gift. Okay? Let me say that again. When God gives us a gift, we are responsible for how we use that gift. And just because Elisha here called out she-bears does, does not mean that God actually wanted that to happen. We actually have to prove that from the text. So what's going on in this passage? 
Well, I think if we set aside some of those assumptions we have that the text doesn't specifically state, right, that Elisha must always be good and holy, that God sent the bears, or that giftings must only be used in holy ways, I actually think we can see this passage in a bit of a new light. And instead of needing to defend, you know, Elisha and his actions, instead, I think what we could actually come to interpret, what I'm persuaded by, is really that Elisha then used his holy gifts in unholy and disobedient ways here in the text. I think that's actually what's going on. You know, one layer below the text, if we pay attention to all those assumptions and all that's going on, what I would be persuaded by is really here instead that I think Elisha has used his holy gifts in unholy and disobedient ways. That when I read this text and I read the fact that God is not mentioned, when I read the fact that biblical characters can be a mix of both good and bad, and when I know the fact is that we can use our giftings in holy and in unholy ways, I think what this text is really showing actually is Elisha using his gifts badly, or I would even say even wrongly in this text. And of course, of course, you may not be persuaded by this interpretation. That's okay. We can actually faithfully disagree over interpretations, but that's how I actually read this text. And if you read the Hebrew Bible and uh, the New Testament really closely, what you'll notice is that there's a theme actually in the Bible. There's a theme of what is called the test. And that this is when God gives someone an ability or a skill or whatever it may be, an anointing, that they are then instantly kind of put into a place where that skill, ability, and their character is tested. We see this really clearly, like with Jesus moving into the wilderness, right? And so I think here, what we're seeing really is Elisha being tested, but him actually failing that test. I think that's what's going on here in this passage, that he's using his gifts in difficult and unholy ways. And as I said, you might not be persuaded by this interpretation, and that's okay. We can faithfully differ on interpretation while staying united really in the authority and the importance of the Bible. But when I read this story, when I read it in light of the rest of Scripture, when I read it in light of the character and revelation of Christ, in light of some of the common assumptions we bring, this idea that Elisha is using his gifts in unholy ways just makes way more sense to me than the idea that we need to just respect our elders or bears will come. This makes much more sense to me about how to read this text in a faithful way. So what's this story really about? Well, for me, it's really about how God gives us all gifts, right? And we're responsible for how we use them. That God gives us all gifts and we're responsible for how we use them. Or in the line that is quoted in every single Spider-Man movie ever, right? With great power comes great responsibility. I think that's what this passage is really about. So what's my main point today? My main point is just this. That we need to use the gifts that God has given us rightly, righteously, and with responsibility. That's my main point today. That we need to use the gifts that God gives us rightly, responsibly, and in the right ways. I think Elisha here, what we see is somebody who actually isn't a positive example, but is a negative example. Notice with me in the text, Elisha never prays. Elisha just seems to react. He seems to actually just be hurt and act out on feelings of revenge. There's no discernment or prayer. Elisha seems to be reacting rather than responding to God and using his gifts rightly. And I think that's what this passage has to teach us, that we can use our gifts either rightly or wrongly. So practically, what does this mean for us? Well, I think it depends, really. It really depends on how you interpret this passage. You might be persuaded more by the common approach, and then maybe your takeaway is to respect your elders or respect God's anointed. But if you're maybe more actually persuaded by the interpretation that I shared with you, then I think the real takeaway for us is a really big question that's important for each and every one of us. The question is, are we using the gifts that God has given us rightly, responsibly, and in healthy and non-selfish ways? Are we using the gifts that God has given us in responsible, accountable ways? Because I think for us, this is how this story can actually connect with our everyday lives. So I want to ask you three questions around this idea of giftings here today. The first question I want to invite you to think through is just this. What gifts, talents, skills, or abilities has God given you? What gifts, talents, skills, or abilities has God given you? 
Because the Bible actually is very, very clear that each of us have been given something by God. Each of us has some gifts, some talents, some abilities that we have been given by God. Paul puts it this way. He says, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. He says, God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does work in all of us. And he says this, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can each help each other. So the question I have for you is just this, is what skills, talents, or abilities has God given you? Right? And let's not downplay any of them. They can be amazing things like teaching, preaching. They can also be like wisdom, encouragement, hospitality. They can also be broader things, right? Like we learned a number of weeks ago, like math, like graphic design, like music, like being an arborist or barista. What gifts has God given you to use responsibly? That's the first question I want to invite you to think through. What gifts have God given you to use responsibly? What comes more naturally to you than to other people? What actually are you passionate about? What gifts have God given to you? And the second question I want to invite you to think through is just this. Are you using that gift faithfully? Are you using that gift faithfully? Because I think what we see in this story is really someone who used the gift unfaithfully. And we know this is true in our lives as well, that whatever God gives to us, we can actually use that in healthy and in unhealthy ways, in destructive, but also in building and generative ways. We can use it in selfish ways or in life-giving ways. I'll give you a few examples. What if you have the gift, really, of making friendships and connections? You can use that gift, actually, to make sure that people have these amazing communities that they're a part of. Or you can also use that gift to exclude other people. Right? You can use it in healthy or in unhealthy ways. Or what about if God's giving you a real gift of being smart in a certain area? Right? You can use that gift right, to share that knowledge with others. Or you can use that gift to make other people feel dumb. Right? We can use it in healthy and in unhealthy ways. What about if God's giving you the gift of actually making money? That this seems to be something that you're just really geared towards. You can use that for the generosity of the world around you or to increase your own net worth. You can use gifts responsibly or irresponsibly. Or what about this? What about this? What if God's giving you the ability to be a really great like, leader in some things? Well, some leaders draw people to themselves. Other really great leaders draw them to a bigger cause that's bigger than them. Right? Wow. How are you using your gifts? Are you using them in faithful ways or in unfaithful ways? And then the last question I want to invite you to consider out of this text, last one I want to invite you to consider is how can you use the gift that God has given you to help others? How can you use the gifts that God has given you to help others? Because Paul is actually really clear in this passage. He says a gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. Because as I said, you can use your gifts actually for others, or you can use them in selfish and destructive ways. I think with Elisha, we see him using that gift in a destructive way rather than a generative way. So I want to invite you to think through what are some of the gifts that you can be using to help others around you? How can you actually be serving and sacrificing out in the community? I know you thought we might never get there, but that's actually what I think the point of this is. Out in the community, how can you use your gifts to help others to make sure that our world is a better place? That's what I want to invite you to think through. And I think we can do this in so many different ways. So I'll give you a few examples of how I've seen it just in the past few weeks even here. There's somebody here in our church who is an amazing, I think you would call them like an urban gardener, right? And gardening is a gift that some people have. It's not a gift that I have. It's a gift that some people have. And I'll show you what this person uh, shared with me. It's an amazing planter full of like lettuce and all sorts of like, like vegetables. It's amazing. And they have used their gift then to bless me. That's a way to help other people when you're using your gift for the service of others. That's how you can use gifts to actually encourage other people around you. And this person's using their gift of gardening to actually encourage other people. And they've dropped off these planters to so many other people. This is a beautiful way of using your gifts faithfully. I'll give you another example, actually. There's a lady in our church who is so amazing at encouragement and hospitality and giving and generosity. And this happened to me literally last night. 
So last night, I go with my daughter Eden to the library. Eden is very excited because they have this summer reading program where as you read, um, you get beads to make a necklace. And she really wanted to make her necklace. So we get to the library, and it's closed, unfortunately, for renovations. They have weird hours, like just this week only. So she's like crushed because she's seven. And if you have a seven-year-old, you know how sometimes these things can just be like, like just the worst ever. So she's kind of like melting and crying. It's like, Dad, but this is going to be our special time, just me and you time together. And she was really just really looking forward to making this necklace. Crafting is kind of her thing. So Five-minute crafts is her favorite thing to watch online. So we drive home, and as I drive home, I see like an ice cream truck, which I never really see, and we never go to. So I pull over to go to this ice cream truck, because I think maybe this will help. And then as I'm walking to it, I realize that I don't have any cash, and I hope that they take credit, when all of a sudden this wonderful lady from the church comes up, kind of kind of out of nowhere. She was sitting in the park where the ice cream truck was, and she asked Eden if she could buy her an ice cream. I have to tell you, this one small act absolutely changed Eden's entire day. All the wide home, all she could talk about is how wonderful this lady was, about how kind she was, about how good SpongeBob popsicles taste. This absolutely altered things. This lady used her gifts of hospitality and grace and generosity to make the world a better place for my daughter, which left a huge impact on me. So today, what I want to challenge you with is really to think through this. What gifts have you been given And then how can you use them to make the world a better place? Because I just think we need more SpongeBob popsicles, not she-bears. That's my perspective on things. So how can you make the world a better place? What gifts have God given to you? Because I know he's given you different ones than he's given me. And that is a beautiful, good, and needed, and a necessary thing. So what I want to challenge you with this week is just this. Can you use some of the gifts that God has given you to help out other people? Can you use some of the gifts that God has given you to help out other people? Because I think this is the way forward. And this is what I'd like to suggest to you from this text. That what this text teaches us is that we need to use our God-given gifts rightly, responsibly, and even righteously in the right direction. So would you do that this week? Would you seek to use the gifts that God has given you in the service of others, not in the service of yourself? Because that is how we make the world a better place. And that's my challenge for all of us here today. So with that, would you join with me in prayer here this morning? God, I ask, I ask wherever we might be at today, I pray would you bring to mind some of the gifts that you have given to us, some of the abilities, some of the skills, some of the things that you have laid in our hearts um, for us to be able to accomplish with you. And I pray this week, might we be people who really see those opportunities, use those gifts to help out one another, to help out those around us so we can see our world become a better place. Might we never use our gifts in selfish ways, but instead might we use them, Lord, for the betterment of your world, for this place, for our community, for our families, friends, and neighbors. And we just pray this all in the wonderful name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.